Wes, I, I think I found the creepiest run Linux I've ever seen. Oh, you mean this weird robot cat? Yeah, Python, robot, and cat that runs Linux. It's the Mars cat. Just like a real cat, Mars cat is fully autonomous, stretching, tapping, and even burying litter. It may express different emotions by different meows or gestures. Mars cat can play with you or your toys. Because or your children. Hear. Mars, go sleep. And see. It can interact with objects or people nearby. Even play with real cats. It sounds so great, but if you watch the video, which we'll have linked in the show notes, the thing doesn't move like a cat. No, cats are graceful animals, and this is an awkward robot. It's very awkward. It's very stiff. It's very scary looking. And they want you to treat it like a real cat. It heals with purr sounds. Every Mars cat is unique. From its eyes, body, to personality, you can pet it and shape its characters in your own way. Dress it up. Make it more adorable. MarsCat is open-sourced and programmable. With powerful quad-core Raspberry Pi, you can create your own applications. MarsCat is also an ideal choice for education, research, and commercial purpose. Or other things. This thing is, um, like they said, powered by Raspberry Pi, uses Python. It has a series of APIs available to control the camera, the microphone. It has touch sensors, 16 servos, which it needs about 30 more. And um, it's a platform for a bionic cat, for the first home robot. The weird thing is, and this is in the video, when they take this thing apart to see the insides, it's as creepy as if they were taking apart a real cat. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of these ideas. I love that it's open source, but you have to be able to actually be around the thing. And I also wonder, it is powered by USB-C, but where do you plug it in? Hello, friends, and welcome into the Unplugged program. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. You've got that very special edition look going. You dressed up all nice. Oh, yes. To the nines. I, I don't know why you, nest, why you have to dress up like that, but I appreciate it. And it makes me feel like it's a very special episode. It's all for you. Today, we're going to bridge the gap between shareware and free software. Those of us who have been around for a piece remember a time when you bought software in bags on walls. And it was the full version of the program, but it often came with certain limitations. How did we get from that to open source and free software ruling the world? We're going to talk about that today, as well as some news, some discussions. And of course, we've got Alex and Cheesy here. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, hello. And as always, we have our virtual lug, a fantastic showing. Hello, Mumble Room. Time appropriate greetings. Hello, hello. Happy Linux hello. Tuesday. Hello. Hola. Howdy. Happy, happy Linux Tuesday. Thank you all for making it here. We have a lot. I think we're going to have a really fun discussion, a lot to get into today. So let's start with some good news, not robot cat news, but good news for Kubuntu users who might be interested in a laptop that comes pre-bundled with what they're calling Kubuntu Focus. Michael Lyrable over at Pharonix had a chance to give it a look, and he says, I've been testing out for several weeks. So he got it like under a embargo. Oh, look at him go. An old NDA skis, as they say in the biz. This is the first generation of the Kubuntu Focus laptop. 
You ready for the hardware specs, Wes? What oh, do you, please. you got any guesses? Well, I'm guessing I'll probably be a little disappointed. I, I thought it was, I mean, when when I first heard the initial rumors, I thought it was going to be an arm box. So right. Like, yeah, something small and minimal. This sucker has an Intel Core i7-9750 processor, an NVIDIA GeForce RTX 2060. Wait, what? It's got a 16.1-inch 1080p screen that runs at 144 hertz. It's IPS, too. It's got a terabyte Samsung Evo drive in it. And then all the other kind of niceties that a, a Clevo laptop of this size has, which have been getting pretty competitive. Do I also see it's got 32 gigs of RAM? That's right. Wow. Okay, yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, as far as a, as a laptop of this nature, a high-end laptop, if you're a Plasma user, Laravel seems to be pretty impressed. He says the software side's looking choice. Yeah, that's right. Kubuntu 1804.3 is shipped on the device with some alterations around the default desktop environment and themes. You get a little bit of customization there, including the dark theme by default, Chris. You'll like that. <laughs> well, now I'm sold. You know, you have that <laughs> NVIDIA GPU, too. So Google Chrome is included and already tweaked with all the GPU options for maximum acceleration. Also of note, it ships with disk encryption turned on by default. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering... What's Kubuntu Focus? We'll have a link to it in the show notes. You can also just go to kfocus.org. It's the result of the collaboration between the Kubuntu Council and Tuxedo working to create something that they felt was pretty well focused I on really like the user. This. We maintain the platform so our customers can focus on work and play. Yeah. I mean, you could really see it. There's not a very wide selection of pre-built hardware Shipping with plasma. Most, I mean, I'm really struggling to think of anything that, I mean, almost all of them that you could buy that's System 76 or Dell or, or somebody else would be generally Gnome Shell. Right, right. Not all of them, I guess, not 100%, but a lot of them. Some of, you know, you get like the mint, you got the mint hardware oh, and stuff sure. like that. That's probably cinnamon. And there's a couple others, but. But yeah, you're right. Plasma's been somewhat underrepresented. And it's nice to see a, what seems like a great offering now. Okay. Can I? Can I admit what feels like an insecurity to you guys? And I think it might be. You know, that's what we have this virtual users group for, Chris. You can be honest, <laughs> share your feelings. All right. Uh, hi, my name is Chris, and I'm afraid that the Windows terminal is getting extremely competitive. And the worst thing about it is uh, Microsoft is incorporating legit nice features that have been contributed by outside community members into their core product. So it's like they freaking get it too, and that's really the most They're frustrating. Using open source to compete against us. <laughs> they got it. They figured it out. Maybe that's why they love it so much. That was our secret. I am talking about, uh, of course. They have now added those cool CRT retro effects that you get from like cool retro term into the Windows terminal itself, which was a contributing. Uh, the community member was called. I love his handle, Irony Man. Not Iron Man, but Irony Man. Um, contributed the CRT retro effects to this, and now it's shipping as an experimental feature. There's other really kind of cool things in here, too, some things you might like. Yeah, they've got some some nice updates to usability, things like you can now modify your profiles.json to have your own default profile settings. And once you set that property, you can have it applied to, like, all your profiles. If you yeah, want. so if you always want the font, a certain font or a certain size, you can apply, you can set some defaults across all profiles. That sounds really nice, and it sounds like the direct kind of feature you add when you've been listening to the users of that terminal. Yeah, stuff too, like some like improvements to how tab sizing works. It's getting pretty slick. This is the reason why I wanted to pull the story because it's an interesting. Um, it's there's an interesting connection here from from a, a company that was really ignoring its terminal for right. We spent many, years many ragging on you know old command.exe. 
Yeah. And then they just, they really focused in on it and it really has exploded. I think your insecurities are somewhat right though, too. I mean, it, it helps them that they've got this open source, but even already on, on the Mac desktop. Yeah. You know, they've got competitors too. I think we need to step up our game. Yeah. I saw, I saw that. So you read in my mind is what I was thinking is like, imagine if, if uh, one of the distros really got it in its head, like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm really going to invest in the terminal. I'm going to make the terminal really great. I know most people are listening are probably thinking to themselves, oh, the terminal's fine. There's nothing really wrong with it. But I don't know, man. I think with the WSL2 stuff and terminal and all of that, I think it's very likely that more and more power users are getting at least a little bit what they want. At least they can stay on the Windows platform. And I guess good good enough for them. Right. Maybe I shouldn't be – maybe it's fine. Maybe I it's mean, fine. Uh, it is hard to say, and I don't like thinking that a, uh, you know, a beautiful, well-functioning open source terminal somehow makes the world worse. You know, one thing that really – I always struggle with on a Windows terminal, whether it's putty or whether it's the built-in one, is copy and paste. It's just really difficult for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, my favorite, favorite thing about using the terminal on Linux is that X uh, clipboard when you just highlight something and then you just middle click to paste it. Yeah. As soon as I'm on any other terminal system and I go to highlight and I'm like, oh, yeah, right. It just changes. Like, you think you already have it. You've, you've copied it. So quick. So fast. So fast. Now, Wes, I, I want to go to our, our our reporter on the ground in Enlightenment Island. Minimek, uh, do you have an E17 perspective on this particular situation? Over. And uh, tell us what you're learning now. Hoo-ha. <laughs> <laughs> so Enlightenment, we started with term- terminology, which is a future terminal, which is really cool because you can watch a video while doing some commands on your command line and everything and all that in your terminal. So it's quite an interesting terminal, and it is available in Ubuntu, I think. Mm, okay. And, of course, re- a cool retro term. I like what Node Runner said in the chat room, though. The future is the GUI. But have, have you tried the terminal? That's exactly it. Nailed it. That is so exactly it. The future is a great GUI where I run a really nice terminal. <laughs> All right. So last week, we've talked about some community um, transitions that were happening around container Linux. And there was also a recent story about a pretty big upset within the Rust community around the ActixX Actix project. I want to say ActiveX, but the Actix project. And um, that developer, who is actually a Microsoft employee, experienced significant burnout and quit the project, pulled the repos off. Now, this is actually a pretty significant project for the Rust community, so it made headlines pretty quickly. How would you describe its relevancy? It's it's probably one of the few that, or it's the largest that does what it does in the community? Right, so it's sort of a whole framework for for web services, interactive HTTP sorts of servers. It's and kind of it, the biggest it one. It was one, at least one of the earlier and most well-known in the community. Yeah. And the, you know, the number of projects that had used it, the sort of community that had developed around it, led you to think it was, you know, I mean, it was a, a maybe there was a team behind it, it was well-maintained or endorsed by the community. Turns out, mostly just, you know, one hard-working maintainer. Yeah, and we covered this story, the whole cycle happened during the week of Linux headlines. And I'm happy to say there is a resolution which is also covered in Linux headlines at linuxheadlines.show. But the the really quick summary is he got overwhelmed and felt probably a little taken advantage of and was sick and tired of justifying well-thought-out design decisions over and over again. Like the same stuff would get noticed and thrown at him. And he just reached a point of, I'm done with open source and I'm pulling the repo, and then people panicked because of the value of this project. 
Well, I think there was another side of that too, is that, you know, it it started as a personal project and it grew. And so you could say, you know, there were design decisions. And I think a lot of that, the community had some rising standards or at least standards that they wanted to implement. And that that takes a lot more work or maybe just a different style of management than a, a single maintainer can provide. Though after some time, the developer had a think and came back and said, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand the reins over to another community member. And so now the repositories are back online and a transition is taking place and it's all amicable. And it's, it's really nice to see that, but it's a reminder of a constant problem. And I, I really feel for these developers because they start something in some cases that they don't plan to monetize or they don't plan to turn it into a business or a foundation. It's really scratching their own scratching itch. Scratching trying to learn or just help the community. And in this case, this individual just nailed the timing because interest in Rust was growing and there was interest in having these types of services. And so it just took off like wildfire and he ended up running a fairly large project. Pretty common story. And it's something that we have a hard time fully appreciating because we don't do the work. I have definitely, as I've gotten to be um, uh, an old fat fart, is... Wisened, wisened. Oh, thank you. Um, I really didn't understand how much work went into all these different career trajectories. And when you when you think you know like what a, what a plumber's job is or an electrician's job or a media person's job or a software developer's job, you just can kind of only really appreciate what you were able to observe from afar. Right. You get the surface level and none of the hard work that goes on underneath. And there was a blog post by Drew DeVault that uh, it, it was like, I wrote this. Only it could be all about content creation, and he's talking about software. And so I think this is a universal human problem. And he posted this last week as we po- as this episode goes out, and I think this is so worth a read. So I want to encourage you to go to Drew's entire blog to read the entire thing. But he just recently crossed a major milestone. February will mark one year that I've been working on self-directed free software projects full-time. I was planning on writing an optimistic retrospective article around this time, but given the current mood of the ecosystem, I think it would be better to be realistic. In this stage of my career, I now feel at once happier, busier, more fulfilled, more engaged, more stressed, and more depressed than I have at any other point in my life. Yeah. Isn't that a weird mix? It's a, and it's, it's, yeah, boy, can I, right? can it's I the, really... It's the hobby turned profession. Yep. It, there's a lot of emotions there. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he speaks to that more. I also have mixed feelings about how busy I am. Every day I wake up to a hundred new emails, delete half of them, and spend three to four hours working on the rest. Patches, questions, support inquiries, monitoring, and reports. It's endless. On top of that, I have dozens of things I already need to work on. The CI work distribution algorithm needs to be completely redone. I need to provision new hardware. Oh yeah, and the hardware that I need ran into shipping issues again. I need to improve monitoring. I need to plan for FOSTEM. I need to finish the Wayland book. I need to figure out the memory issues in Himitsu, not to mention write the rest of the software. I need to file taxes, which is twice as much work when you own a business. I need to implement data export and account deletion. I need to finish the web-driven patch review UI. I need to finish writing docs for Alpine. I have to work more on the Pine phone. I have a legacy server which needs to be overhauled and is now on the clock because of Acme V1. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that's not even all of these. Like, that's what's off the top of my head. He says, not to mention the tasks which have been on hold for longer than they've been planned for in the first place. 
Alpine is still going to have hundreds of Python 2 packages by the end of life. RISC-V work has been stalled because the work is currently blocked by a large problem that I simply can't automate. There's another project he's committed to called FOSPAY, which is having issues pulling data figures from Patreon, and he has to restart a process manually every so often to get it to work. And there's dozens of other loose ends. And he says that's not even considering any personal goals. I think anybody that's kind of been in the situation that's been here, it's like you just get so focused on work. He says, which I have vanishingly little time for. I get zero exercise, and though my diet is mostly reasonable, the majority of it is delivery. Right. <laughs> unless I get the odd two hours to visit the grocery store. That is, unless I want to spend those two hours with my friends, or in my case, family and wife, which means it's back to delivery. My dating life is almost non-existent. I want to spend more time studying Japanese, but it's either that or keeping up with my leisure reading. Lofty goals of also studying Chinese or Arabic are but dust in the wind. And to make matters worse, I'm addicted to caffeine again. There have been healthy ways and unhealthy ways of dealing with the occasional feelings of being overwhelmed by all of this. The healthier ways have included taking walks, reading my books, and spending a few minutes with my cat, doing chores, and calling my family to catch up. Less healthy ways have included walking to the corner store to buy unhealthy comfort foods. Oh, yeah. Consuming alcohol or marijuana too much or too often. Getting in stupid internet arguments. <laughs> being mean to my friends and colleagues and googling myself to read negative Ooh, comments. Yeah. He says, I've been trying to do that my entire life. Trying to get all of this balanced. Writing code for someone else has always been a huge drain on my emotional well-being. That's why I worked on my side projects in the first place to have an outlet through which I could work on self-directed projects without making compromise for some arbitrary deadline. I recently had that realization that I should do a personal side podcast just so I have a pure creative outlet so I can stick to the stick to the to to what works here like the topics and do if I want to talk about RVs or whatever it might be, I need to have an outlet for that. But I don't need to put it into a Linux show. Or shoehorn it in. So, uh, and then, you know, the idea of taking as long as I want to make content, because I've been doing weekly content for so long. I could really kind of connect with this. He says, when I'm in the zone writing lots of code for a project I'm interested in, knowing it's going to have a meaningful impact on my users, knowing that it's being written under my terms, is the most rewarding work I've ever done. This isn't a retrospective I wanted to write. But it's nice to drop the veneer for a few minutes and share an honest take on what it's like. This year has been nothing like what I expected it to be. It's both terrible and wonderful and very busy. I have a bit of advice for Drew via podcast here. Uh, just for a moment, the rest of you can skip ahead. But my advice directly to Drew is, uh, and to be clear, this isn't our Drew. This is software developer Drew. <laughs> uh, our, our Drew, Drew DeVore, is, is not. This is Drew DeVault, which... Now realizing sounds a lot like Drew. <laughs> from Drew's also uh, very busy, so I'm sure he sympathizes yeah, with this Yeah, this too. is not our Drew. This is software developer Drew, full-time software developer Drew. Sway maintainer and many other cool yes, projects. Yes, we've talked about him before on the show, so I kind of went in with a little bit of assumption. Uh, but my advice to him, and really anybody who finds themselves in these positions actually, is try not to get in the, oh my God, I'm so busy mentality, because it's a way of thinking. And it's it's a way to immediately say, no, I can't do that. I'm too busy. I can't do that. I'm too busy. Nah, what's the point of running out for 15 minutes? I'm too busy. And it's a, it's a, it's a cycle you can get in that amplifies your feelings about not being appreciated for 
the software you're creating or people not understanding your rationale, like those all get amplified by this. I'm too busy to deal with this crap mentality and you've got to break it. And you've got to just say right now is quite busy, but there will be time. And you have to just shift your mentality and try to say yes to a few things. And I know that sounds hard when you're really busy, but it is a, it is a tricky mindset you can get locked into and it's very counterproductive so, and I think it leads to burnout. That's always hard to uh, prioritize long-term over short-term, but yeah, for you, ha- sure. you have to make time. Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm like some expert at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling quite uh, overwhelmed when I lived in England and working in, in London, uh, you know, uh, living in a big city like that, I actually found it quite oppressive. Um, and I was going to an office every day, so I had an excuse to get out the house. And so w- one of the big things, obviously, as some of these listeners will know, is that I obviously emigrated last year to the US. And one of the primary drivers for that was quality of life. And it was it was me being honest with myself and sort of saying, and, and looking at my life as it was and saying, am I happy with how this is going? And would I be willing to try and change some things to try and improve it? And then I got this job with Red Hat where I'm working from home the whole time, as in, if I want to never leave the house, I could literally never leave my front door ever again. Yeah. So I've kind of swapped one set of problems for another yeah. set of problems, um, which is kind of great because I, I, I don't miss a commute. I'll be perfectly honest. I, I miss the kind of disconnection between the office and home, you know, that 20, 30 minutes or sometimes two hours. Right. Clear separation of where you're doing work. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't miss a commute. Genuinely, I don't. But there are some days where you think it would be nice t- to take 20 or 30 minutes. And a great example of this is before we recorded the last self-hosted episode, I went and said to Chris, look, I just need to take a 20, 30 minute walk to clear my head and just get some air. Because I actually hadn't left the house that day. And it was like, what, 4.30 p.m. at that point? So there's a bunch of stuff you've got to be cognizant of. I did that recently and I should do it more often because I have found, I, I have a, a huge resistance to doing it. But if I go and then come back, not only do I feel like kind of good for actually have gotten it done and that kind right. of gives me like a bit of a boost, but I, I tend to have a bit of a temperament or mind shift on a topic. And when I got back, I really cranked out a lot of work, which felt really awesome too. So then it was sort of like a double whammy. And so it, it kind of felt like it was... It was worth the time, and it was nice to get a break in the rain. Brent, you said you were just kind of struggling with this stuff earlier this morning. Yeah, I mean, I've been working as a solo photographer now, I guess solo photographer slash podcaster for basically ever. Um, and, and Alex, you you sort of expressed this as well, but um, you know, being in your own little office in your house, or you know, a lot of people feel this at work too. You feel kind of isolated somehow, and so I I find myself just really empathizing with everything you read there um, because most of those thoughts that he expressed, I was thinking just this morning, like, Oh geez, I, I can't do the 20 minutes of yoga that my body is craving that I know helps me throughout the day because I, I feel like I have too many things that I need to get done. And those 20 minutes feel really precious. Um, but I think sometimes I, I remind myself that like you were saying, Chris, it's a bit of a trap because by taking those 20 minutes, you know, to go for a walk or to, to eat a healthy meal or something like that, your future minutes are actually spent far better. Um, and when you're just overloaded with work, I think it's easy to forget that kind of stuff. Think about it like painting a wall, Brent, like the prep's the worst part, but once you actually get there and you do it properly, you know, take the extra time to prepare for the day properly, you know? It's a really good point. And I think something we need to remember 
every single day. Um, but I even hit with, you know, the, the topic of social life because it feels like often, you know, we're, we, we, we feel as though we have some quasi social interaction through our computers via the internet and stuff like that. But it's just not the same and it doesn't give us the same slow bandwidth. Yeah. There's not the same like human connection that is life-giving. Our factual evolved brains like, oh, this is good. So I'm chatting with people. I'm very social, but there's this lower level part of you. I think we also need to remember too, to, to accept that, you know, when working in open source or others in day-to-day life that like, you gotta let other people make time for their own health and well-being if you're going to keep interacting with them. I think there's room for developers to have a better set of expectations for their users to be able to set expectations. And I think right. there's room for users, a lot of room for users to adjust their expectations of open source projects. And a lot of people blame GitHub and the, the GitHub model for this, but I actually think you could use that same argument say people could be spending the time to look into who's contributing to this project, do the freaking math and realize it's one developer and right. set their expectations accordingly. Once you start using it, say like, this is important to me. How do I make sure that this project is healthy and maintainable? Yeah, yeah, really. The other thing I feel is important is collaboration. It feels like, you know, when two people are working on a project, it's far better than two isolated people working on a project. Like the throughput is is more than twice the times, mm-hmm. right? And someone can cover the other person while they're taking some downtime and that kind of thing. So I think really uh, healthy collaboration is is often not given the right kind of praise. Well, remind me, let's pick this back up in the post show because I think we all probably have more thoughts on this. Uh, and this is probably, we could expand this conversation a bit. But I think we should get back on the, on the main track here because uh, we have a lot to get to. Uh, but I think this is a very important conversation and we can pick it back up here in a little bit. Um, and it's one that keeps cropping up every few yeah, months. I don't think There's, this will be the last episode we talk boy, about. Boy, we could it. go through and make so many examples. Ugh. But uh, it's good to see in the case of Rust that a resolution is there. Things are moving forward. People are talking. There, I think, was some learning happened. Um, so, you know, in this case, and and I think I really, I really want to commend Drew Duvall for posting that very honest. Yeah, that must right. not. I mean, he he took the time out of all those other tasks to write this retrospective blog post and share some of his private personal feelings, and that's yeah, that's, that takes a lot. And I think that's the exact kind of thing that can help us have a better connection with these developers, help us empathize a little bit more with their position. So I think that actually him him being vulnerable like that, I think really kind of uh, see. Look at that; it's an episode of vulnerability. Vulnerability helps everybody. Every now and then, a little vulnerability is good. Oh, is it that time? That's right. It's time for housekeeping. few things to mention today. I want to plug the outrageously awesome Telegram group that we have raging now at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. Having a really fun conversation in there this morning about Project Off-Grid. This is something I'm working on. And um, a few other things. Sometimes we have, we make a few jokes. People uh, like to give me a hard time every now and then. Popey you pops in never. there. Teases me. That kind of stuff. So that's at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. A lot of the crew hangs in there. So... You know, we're hanging. Yeah, come chat with Chilling. us. It's like the JB water cooler, only instead of a water cooler, it's like a town water tower. Because it's really kind of the population of like a small town, like a oh, small yeah, eastern crammed in there. Yeah. And they've got a lot to say. And then we just got, yeah. Sprinkle a little Linux on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few bots to keep the order. And it's all good. So that's at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. Do we have anything else for the housekeeping? Go check out self-hosted, selfhosted.show where I give a major project off-grid update probably in the next episode by the time this is coming out. I don't know. 
time math is hard because we're recording ahead. So I don't know how it works. <laughs> time is just a construct, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to get held down by it. <laughs> New media. <laughs> right? All right. So how did we get to free software from shareware? Those of us that remember the term shareware remember an era of software that you would download and maybe use it for a certain amount of time, and then you get a pop-up, or maybe you could do certain kinds of functions. There's a lot of different types of shareware. Crippleware, trialware, donationware, negware. <laughs> you know what's funny is this is a topic that is literally about as old as I am. And it goes back to an early era of the industry that was still figuring out how to even distribute software pre-internet pre-CD-ROM, so you didn't have a lot of capacity. Most everything was on floppies. Um, and then BBSs came along, and then stores started to come along. So we thought it'd be great to go back in time. I think um, gosh, I think it was somewhere back in uh, 1988-ish. That's right. We go to the authorities, the Computer Chronicles, in which they have an episode dated, dedicated to shareware and their struggle to figure exactly what it was. Oh, it's great. Why are you giving this away? How does it work? How is this even possible? Do people take advantage? Is there a trade of money? Today, we're going to take a look at some of the best examples of shareware, both for the IBM PC and the Macintosh, and we'll meet the man who helped create the concept, Jim Button. Jim Button gets a lot of credit for coining the term shareware, doesn't he? Yeah, and it's it's a little bit complicated because he he was an IBM employee back in the 80s and he wrote a program to help his local church congregation and as we were just talking about demand for his program consumed too much of his time so he left IBM and created his company Buttonware released his first program PC file which was like a flat file database I don't know old technology right in 1982, he called that user-supported software. And it really was one of the first examples. There were a couple other terms thrown around, freeware, but that was copyright. So eventually landed on shareware. Joining us in the studio now, the man they sometimes call the father of shareware, Jim Button, CEO of Buttonware. And next to Jim is Russell DiMaria, author of the book Public Domain Software. Gary? Jim, what's the background behind shareware? Where'd it come from? Shareware started really in 1982. And I think Andrew Flugelman probably was first with the idea uh, out of San Francisco, and he uh, produced a product called uh, PC Talk. Mm -hmm. It was the first shareware product on the market. There was no free software. There was no open source. There was really not even an agreed-upon way to distribute the software. No, and most of the software you're going to get at this time, well, it all came from big commercial software houses with expensive price tags because it was, I mean, it was business users. This was Very expensive. at the dawn of, you know, personal commute, computing. And the software originally with shareware was was very generous. Some of it was run for as long as you want. There's a few examples of that still. WinRAR <laughs> right. comes from that era. Uh, but... People, just like some now, some now, struggled to understand free software. Back then, struggled to understand the concept of shareware. And Button says, well, think of it really as just a marketing term. Shareware is a distribution method and is primarily a way of distributing uh, full-function uh, full demo disks. Um, users are invited to share the full-function disks with all of their friends and to use them in the comforts of their home. Money changes hands when the user decides that he really likes the program, wants to put it into productive use, and develop a relationship with the author, which would include technical support, printed manual, and things like that. And what are the typical prices for a package? 
Prices, shareware prices go all the way from $15 to $20 up to, there's one product on the market that's $100. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound familiar? Hey, use it if you want. If you like it, help out. Yeah. And you never really saw shareware as a concept really take off on the Linux desktop. Crossover, I guess you could technically say, does it? They let you try it for 30 days or something like that. Right. And there's a few, you know, helpful but proprietary applications or source not available that are floating out. But they're definitely the exception. Yeah. When when shareware was really getting going, there was all these different schemes, like we mentioned here at the top, all these different ways of doing things. And the more successful the app was, the more riskier shareware model they could take. But what about, I, you were telling us about the decompression and the compression software, about how depending on what you're going to do oh, with it, you have a different price. Yeah, Stuff in particular, uh, Ray Lau, who wrote the program, has a very nice scheme. If you're just using it to decompress files that you're getting from some online service or elsewhere, it's free. And you, there is no donation requested. If you're using it to archive files, to upload, then he requests $18. Mm-hmm. This doesn't actually even seem that far from the free core model. No, right? It's a natural analog. Hey, here's some basic features. If you want more, well, we, we want you to help us maintain and make this sustainable. Yeah. I kind of became aware of the shareware industry when it was sort of in the CD-ROM era. When it went big time, the CD-ROM revolution meant that you could pack and ship hundreds of shareware applications on a single CD-ROM. And the way it could be sold was the entire applications on this disk. Look at all these great applications. Everything you would ever need is on the CD-ROM. And the companies that nailed that, and you would have like the really, the really sweet shareware companies would have books that you would order, like magazines, and you could go through that, and the magazine might come with a CD-ROM. And I'm not talking like a thin magazine. I'm talking like a Sears catalog magazine. Put on some music, kick back, <laughs> yeah. look at all the options. Yeah, it was. And, there was, of course, there was BBSs that were dedicated to this. And, of course, there was Juarez sites that were dedicated to trading a lot of the keys to unlock or crack the shareware. Right. Which is still kind of a thing in the Windows world. And uh, so when I came along, it was kind of during this part where the Internet hadn't really become a thing yet. But that really changed the game too, especially dial-up. <laughs> my dad and I, my dad and I used to, you know, have like a collection of shareware apps that we loved. That whenever we, whenever we could, we'd buy like the family edition and we'd share that because that became a thing for a while too. Get yeah. a family license for this. But the thing that wi- that I witnessed was the businessification, where a business could come in and make a sweet offer to a developer and say, "Can we want to buy?" A year's worth of your software where you develop it, but we rebrand it, different icon, different name, and we bundle it with other shareware. And then we'll even put it in a box and we'll put it on the shelf and you'll get a cut of the sales. So the the shareware developer would maintain a public shareware edition of their software. And then there would be like a sneaky rebranded version that would be sold in a box. And the these big shareware middlemen would come in, they were huge operations, they would come in and organize all of it. The, the deals with the, with the shipping companies, the magazines, the deal with CompUSA or whoever it was that was going to put it on the shelf, they would, manage, they would manage all of that. And one of the bigger ones, you might remember if you're from my era, was a company called PC Sig. If you've ever bought shareware, chances are fairly good that you got it from here. This is PC Sig, the world's largest shareware distributor with a library of over 25,000 programs and sales of some 1,000 disks each day. 
Well, shareware is the alternative to the high-price commercial spread. The shareware programs that are now available are equal, if not better, than a lot of the commercial programs on the market, and hundreds of dollars less when it comes to registration. PCSIG is the conduit between shareware authors and users, handling the marketing and advertising for the authors and guaranteeing quality for the customers. When we get a program in here that's submitted, uh, it goes to our librarian, he looks it over. If it meets what we consider to be good shareware standards, uh, he then sends it out to an independent reviewer. Then it's reviewed again before it's placed in the catalog. Everything sold here is also supported by full-time staffers. Technical support. PCSIG's success has allowed it to branch out into some new areas. It now publishes a bi-monthly magazine. You can buy all 25,000 programs at once on this CD-ROM disc. And you can buy some of the titles now in retail stores. And the company has also branched out into the business of selling hard-to-find videos. In other words, shareware has been very good to PCSIG. It's come a long way from the founder's garage to a company now making several million dollars a year. In Sunnyvale, California, for the Computer Chronicles, I'm Wendy Woods. Oh, the short reign that they had. <laughs> I love that that sound at the end there. That was floppy disks moving on an assembly line. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it. it I tell you, the, the 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 method of shipping software has changed, and and so it has, it has really changed the entire software industry, and the growth of open source and Linux kind of rocked all of this. There was a period of time where commercial software was the default, closed source software was the default. And even in the even in the Unix era, it was keeping your own innovations. That was that was really the default. It wasn't until really a, a bit of a, a revolution came along and changed everything. We do have one sector that is taking off today. It is the Linux-related sector. And I thought this might be a good opportunity to say, what is Linux? And I'll uh, answer this question for you. Many of you probably already know, but there are 12 million users out there. A computer operating system developed by hundreds of programmers collaborating on the Internet. A challenge to Microsoft Windows NT. Very popular for its speed. And so this is what the craze is about. The Internet combined with the free software movement and Linux and then the explosion of the web in the late 90s was all perfectly timed to fundamentally shift value of software and the entire software industry. And during this transition, shareware as a normal concept of software distribution sort of became an ancient idea that very few things Right, it's interesting when you think, too, you know, how you, how you interact with it. Shareware, the focus is on, you know, delivery of the the application as its runtime, a running executable because it's filling some business need. But as, you know, as computers came more and more into our lives, the need to have that freedom and to be able to modify and control things, that becomes a lot more important. Yeah. And the, the shift again to hosted services versus selling directly to consumers, there's more value now in building something that runs on a back end than from in most cases than building something that consumers use directly in, in terms of software not not in all cases but it's been a big shift um and if it wasn't for it imagine i mean just the world's so much better off for it. i i encourage everyone to to watch revolution os if you haven't watched it or you haven't watched it recently boy is it a time capsule but it perfectly covers and i wish we could play a lot of clips from it but they'd slam us for copyright but it perfectly covers this transition period we're talking about, this period of time, it really captured it. it captured the, the mentality, 
Um, and it, it really kind of reminds us of the wars we were fighting back then with Solaris and the different Unixes and it's just really something. We've come, we've come a long way. I mean, we could have been in a, you know, a world where Windows NT just consumed everything. It was <laughs> kind of close for a while. Yeah, good old. Did you notice in that clip they're talking about NT and hundreds of developers? <laughs> it's so quaint. It really is. It really is something special. So, um, shareware eventually faded away and it's not completely gone, but I think the big default became the transition to open source software for not just server server side development, but really for anything that you wanted to get a large market adoption. It kind of just became the default. Right. And I think, you know, having easier modes of communication, that helps. Because before, let's say you had your your source there, that might be nice, but probably 80% of the people you shipped your shareware to, they weren't going to have the tooling or knowledge to be able to make, you know, modify that. But now anyone who's interested has easy ways to participate in a code base that's open. So much has shifted because of the way we can distribute software over the internet and then interact directly with the people that are distributing that software and then build wikis and forums around that to help people get it set up. And it's it's just such a huge shift from when you were getting it in a disc in a bag in a little shop somewhere or buying it from a developer and downloading it over your modem using GitWrite, which was also shareware. Best downloader right. I had back in the day was GitWrite. Um, and uh, classic shareware games like Doom. Like that was how Doom monetized. You could get the first few levels. It's, it was like in-app purchases now. Oh, my God, what's old is new. Holy crap. I don't know if you remember this. You can actually, we'll have a link in the show notes. There's a version on archive.org and DOSBox. It's the shareware version of Doom. And so, like, the first bit of Doom, first level or 10 levels, I can't remember, was free. And then if you wanted to play all of the other levels, you had to pay for the shareware. It's kind of... It's kind of not uh, unusual when you think of it in the terms of apps on mobile devices. No, not at all. That's how the new Mario Run and uh, Mario games work on on the phone. It's like you get the first couple levels, and if you want to play all of them, you got to pay the in-app purchase. I guess there's just some uh, core models that work, and it comes back to you know talking about marketing. It's it's a way to get your stuff out there to try before you buy, but then still have a way back to actually support continued development. <laughs> oh, Wes, I love running those old clips. It's it's very nostalgic. Computer Chronicles was great. Well, but I think do we have a link to that full video? We should. Yeah. We should put a full link in the show notes to that. All right. Well, why don't we get to our picks before we get out of here in the special edition? Yeah, because turns out, you know what, we do live in the current day. We have access to tons of great open source software. And this is the part of the show where we tell you about it. Two picks, guys. Pick over the well, that's Two. why it's picks and not pick. This is oh, okay. All See. right. Okay. Well, this first one's pretty great, uh, especially for those of us who think the terminal's the future. Hashtag terminal future. That sounds bad. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good. So this first one's called Brute, B-R-O-O-T. I was going to try to make Wes say it, but he didn't speak up, so then I had to say it. And it gives you an overview of a directory, even a big one, in a really nice, concise, readable way. Right. Think of it as a combination of maybe something like um, if you used uh, ncdo to to you know manage and clean up files, which shows you like an interactive curses-based application to drill down and get yeah, disk sizes. I do. Do you ncdo? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and if you've maybe used the the tree command and show, prints you a little tree of the directory structure, Brute's something of a combination of those, but it's, it's a very interactive environment. So you can sort of drill down. It stores past locations. It's like the tree file viewer manager for your terminal you never knew you wanted. Huh. I'm sorry, I'm just distracted by your special edition outfit that you wore today. It's just... Isn't it nice? Yeah, I mean, it's nice, except for the sequences are a little bit much, because we have the lights on, so that's a bit much, but... Yeah, but I didn't, I mean, did you even know they made this color? 
No, I did not. I don't even know how you found that. All right, well, we have another pick here. Uh, this one is, again, hashtag Terminal Future. Oh, that's not good. And um, I don't know how we say this one. How come I'm always the dumbass that has to read the names? <laughs> I think it's Tizonia. I, th- I was going to say that, or Tizona. Or, Tizona? Tizonia. No, Tizonia, yeah. Um, it's a cloud music streamer for your terminal. So if you got your Spotify's or your Google Play Music's or your SoundClouds or your YouTube's, maybe you got a Plex, maybe you want to Chromecast this business. I do, I do. Well, who wants to do it in a GUI when you can do it in the terminal, right? Cheese, boom, cheesify it. Absolutely. That's what we're going to call when you put stuff in the terminal. We're just cheesifying it. Cheesifying it? I like it. I'll go with that term. When, when you can take something and do it in the terminal, that's putting a slice of cheese on it. That's what we're doing. Putting a slice of cheese on your music app. <laughs> oh, looks like they've got Docker, Snap packages, Ubuntu packages, even one for Raspbian. Well, it says right here on the website, too, that it's the most powerful cloud music player. So power's good, right? I mean, you're welcome, everybody. What else do you need to know? It's the most powerful. And apparently it's the first implementation of OpenMax Ill 1.2, which I don't know what that is, but... Uh, it's the first implementation of it, so... It's a standard for integration of multimedia components into media frameworks to simplify development of audio, video, encoders, and decoders. Dutchy. Yeah, from the Kronos Group. Everybody knows that. God. Everybody knows the mobile market is constantly evolving and demanding ever-increasing multimedia functionality and performance cheese. <laughs> Duh, I'm so, 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 why am I even here? Slug out. Do your homework. <laughs> Anyways, we'll put a link to uh, Blot, right? Was that the first one? Brute. Oh, yeah, whatever. Brute. Brute. I'm going to make you use it now. You're just being so mean to the poor Well, I mean, I got NCDU and I got DF. I don't need this crap. But it's fine. It's fine. You want to put it in my show? It's fine. (laughs) Uh, We've been streaming for too long. And then Tizona, which just sounds like a delicious calzone. Brute's written in Rust. So there you go. You'll change your mind now. Oh, I love it. Oh, okay. All right. Why didn't you say so earlier? That's great. Have you guys heard of Brute? It's a really nice way to view the directories, even, even big ones. Check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 328. Over there, linuxunplugged.com slash subscribe uh, is where you can get... 338. You know what? <laughs> no. We're changing this number now. <laughs> We're, We're starting over! <laughs> All right. All right. So it's 328? 338. 338. 338? Three, 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 yeah. Where am I? <laughs> All right. There you go. Linuxunplugged.com slash 338. I would redo it so that way Joe could clean it up, but I think we'll just keep it in there like that. Because, you know, we podcast hard for you, and this is the result. We get a little loopy. That's what happens. You know, you think the caffeine would keep you on the straight and narrow. Nope. It just slowly destroys you. And Wes was like, we should be drinking today. And I was like, no, we got to, you know, we got to stay on the straight and narrow. Kept us on the straight and narrow. Yeah, that's that's how it went. Anyways, linuxunplugged.com slash 338 for links to everything, as well as the contact pages over there. We'll be back live at our regular Tuesday noon Pacific time. You can get that converted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. A massive shout out to our virtual log. A fantastic showing. Really appreciate everybody making it. And uh, each one of you now go to linuxheadlines.show and subscribe. It's a good little show. I'm, I feel, you know, like I'm proud of it or something. It's a good show. You know, like, you know, like when, you, when, you're a, when you're a parent of like a kid or a pet and you, you watch them learn something, you get proud of them, you know, like the first time you taught your dog to piss outside and you're like, I'm so proud of that dog. That's how I feel about headlines. You know, it's also just super handy because sometimes you don't have time to keep up on the news. Yeah. And who wants your podcast to piss in the house? So, wow. 
<laughs> wow. This has been Linux Unplugged, the podcast that won't piss in your house. <laughs> and headlines won't either. It's, it's really well trained. It's, it's been domesticated, and I really like it. So check it out at linuxheadlines.show. Go get more Alex and I at selfhosted.show. And I got one more for you. A little bit different, though. Different TLD, so brace yourself. TechSnap.Systems. What? Yeah, didn't even know .Systems was a thing. Turns out it is. There's so many great things. Turns out .Horse is a thing. .Audio is a thing. Who knew? Oh, I guess I did. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar for the times in the local zone, because we would like you to join us next week, and we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. Unplugged program. Mm, love that song. You know, I'm a big fan now of the longer outros, but the tighter intros. Yeah. Bring yeah. it nice and short. Over the years, you can chart the length of the unplugged intro. It's just gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. Well, you want the intro because you're excited about the content, right? If you're listening yeah. to the podcast. But the outro, that's your nice, the long outro gives you time to pick what you're going to listen to next. Well, when we were new at podcasting, we thought, we told ourselves, well, we got to set the tone. We got to set the mood. So we got to have a nice long intro that really sets the mood for my great podcast. And you know, you see this on YouTube now, like so many like YouTubers have these really long intros oh, yeah. um, with fancy graphics. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Let's get to it. Don't you love it when they say that? Let's get right to it after like an eight minute intro. <laughs> yeah. So let's get right to it. Yeah. But podcasts do this too. But then what happens is if you're a listener and you've heard that podcast a hundred times, think about how much of your life is spent just listening to that same intro music, which is coming in in a compressed MP3 likely or a compressed YouTube video. But I love it. Like one of the transformation experiences of my year last year was sat in the studio with you listening to the intro of LUP recording LUP. Well, you got to have a little something, I think. You know, you got to you got to have a little you got to have a little something so that way when you hear the song you're like, "Oh, that's from the show I like." Right, totally. So you got to have a little something, but I think where you go long is in the outro. Where I think the balance is struck really well is in user air. It's got an identifiable boing yeah, right yeah. in. That's nice. But then it's got that beautiful long outro that I listen to every single time. Right, you don't have to skip it. You just let it fade out. I always have. What was that intro like again? Boing. <laughs> a little more, a little more oing. Boing. There you go. Yeah, there you, go. I you nailed it. That one. You nailed it that time. <laughs> You're trying to get me. All right, we got to pick our title. JBTitles.com. Mm. Uh, you know when you guys were talking about the shareware and the freeware and yeah. stuff. Yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, and I wanted to come back to the other thing too. When you had mentioned WinRAR. Yeah. You still haven't paid for years, bud? Oh, man. <laughs> it, was, it was NADware, right? But the but the one thing about it that I don't think a lot of people knew is that if you just right-click on your file, you could extract it and never get nagged. Oh, I think it was classically famous for, for that. Um, so I know public, So tag me in the mumble room if you had other thoughts on the whole developer burnout topic that we discussed because I, I knew a couple other people wanted to jump in. On that, I wanted to because I think what I really appreciated about that blog post that we read was it really made me realize that this isn't a Linux problem or an open source problem. It's a human problem, yeah. and you can apply it to software development. You can apply it to basically everything. Anybody who's 
in in a situation where there's a lot of those kind of types of dynamics at play. So, uh, Colonel, I wanted to give you a chance because I saw you had pinged me earlier. Yeah, I've been thinking a while, uh, for a while now about is there some way that we could maybe the open source community band together and create an organization that would put a framework around bringing in volunteers to deal with the non-development side of maintaining a project. So things like managing the money coming in, managing, creating a foundation, if it gets that far for that project, maybe maintaining the servers for like a website or a, you know, rocket chat or something like that. Yeah. Wes and I were uh, actually just brainstorming this yesterday and I think we both agreed it probably wouldn't work, but the idea was is a loose group of volunteers who are kind of like a team that can come in and say, we can help you get these things set up. They don't run it for you necessarily, or maybe they they get something immediately resolved for you, but they they connect you with the right people to get a foundation established or right. get a contractor in to help you with the accounting or something like that. It strikes me as it's kind of the other side of the coin. You know, we've often talked about how we have a lot of open source developers, but not always like open source technical PMOs writers or, or, right, exactly, or people who do UI work. Accountants. And, yeah, but no one's, no one's managing your backlog for you. When right. Have this open source communications, project. Communications, troubleshooting, tech support. Yeah. Like we, and these are all important roles. It kind of makes me want to put it together. You know what I mean? Like I want to put together a strike team that like comes. But then we started talking about it. And we're like, you know, a lot of these developers are pretty proud of doing it their own way. That's the other part is it's not for work. You're not getting, right? It's it's your project and there's a little yeah. more ownership and care. And it's kind of like, hey, knock, knock. We noticed you're doing a bad job. Would you like us to help you solve it? I mean, that you know, you'd have to really be careful on who you approached, how you approached it. Got to be, got to be respectful. Yeah, but maybe if you'd done it long enough, you'd have a reputation where people would come to you. But I, I kind of was thinking something along the same lines, Colonel. It would be nice have a little organization that could pop in and just help manage that. All right, uh, we'll do Drifter first, and then we'll do Pie Crash. So go ahead, Drifter. What were your additional thoughts? Well, I was just thinking, like, it's it's definitely a developer thing. Being a developer myself, it's it's a huge issue to get burned out. And it's really hard, especially when you have, like, the the consumer or user um, who, you know, is approaching you and, oh, i got all these things that have to be done. And it, like you were mentioning, it's, it's really difficult. If you're not getting out, you don't get those breaks. You burn out really easy. But I think that it's just a human problem. Sometimes it's really easy, whether that's, like, via our ticketing system or, or something like that. It's really easy to forget that there's just people behind it. Like it's a, it's a person problem. We forget that it's these people. Sometimes they need, need a little bit of a, a little bit of slack on that. Yeah. I can't tell you how many, how many <clears throat> emails I've gotten where somebody really gives me the third degree about something. Maybe, maybe it's generally somebody who's pretty passionate about something. And then I just kind of respond and, and address a few of their points and, Nine out of ten times they respond back saying, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot you were like a dude that was just talking to another dude. And I was having a bad day. And I I mean, I've seen that a thousand times over the years because people that are part of a project or somebody that's just on Twitter or a celebrity or or podcaster is uh, a bit of an abstraction. And so you're communicating with an abstracted concept of a human. You know, you don't, you don't see, you know, you don't see me here with my belly and, and my beard and my hair that still looks pretty great. <laughs> and on all of that, you don't see that, right? You just, you have the concept of Chris and you communicate with that concept. Um, and that's when I was saying earlier in the show that this low bandwidth aspect of communication over the internet really matters to like base levels in our monkey brain. All right. So Mr. Crash, I wanted to give you a chance to jump in. So uh, the thing I wanted to talk about is like 
burnout is pretty much in every everyone's problem. I mean, startup people get burnout, and uh, even students get burnout. I'm a student myself, and I got some uh, pro problem with burnout a couple of years ago. And it's like the problem is uh, that you need to learn, and so we all need to learn to ask for help before we are burnout. Actually. That's uh, the really big problem, and it's a good thing what Rudy Walt uh, wrote. That's just like I'm asking for help. Yeah, and just a little understanding, <clears throat> even just to kind of connect with where I'm at. Brent, what do you think? Yeah, uh, this is a huge topic uh, and an important one. And I feel like if yeah, there's some way that we can allow our experts, you know, those who are coding, they're best at coding, and yet they have you know, a hundred other tasks that surround that activity to make it successful. Um, we need some open source, you know, it, it's really in any area, but if we're talking just open source, we need some people who are really passionate open source accountants who can, you know, come and help 10 developers with that area so that the developers or podcasters or photographers or whatever their expertise is, can focus on what they're actually really good at mm -hmm. and not waste their cycles doing, you know, inefficient and also oftentimes really frustrating work that they just need to get done to allow them to, to make a living, but, um, aren't jazzed about. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of that. I think too, conversations like this, which remind us, um, that they're human and conversations like you have on brunch, remind us that these are human, it humanizes these people. And I think that's also pretty helpful. Even if it's only part of the solution, I think it's still good to do, uh, especially in free software and open source. Yeah, I, I agree, Drifter. This could be a whole topic, couldn't it? I mean, you could have a whole podcast dedicated to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think we could all definitely use it too. Just <laughs> being able to have like an area just to vent, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, I've been bashing on internet communications, but it's, it's at least we have this. And so, I mean, I think you could glass half full it too and say, it's not enough, but it's better than absolutely nothing. And just being by yourself in a room quiet, uh, it's nice to have this connection. So I think there's some, some positives to it too. What do you think, Alex? I think recognizing burnout and being honest with yourself and being able to have the courage to say, yes, I'm not enjoying what I'm doing is, is a real, you know, it's a real scary thing the first time, you know, my personal experience was. I was working for Apple on the Genius Bar and everything about that told me I should love it because I was repairing stuff and I was enjoying it, you know, the technical side, but dealing with customers all the time just wore me down and admitting to myself that that wasn't what got me out of bed in the morning took me a couple of years, honestly. Hmm. From Apple to Red Hat, but it took some analysis, right? Yeah, yeah. And and reading reading books, honestly, on, on the topic, I would say is a huge help. Because it gives you, as you're reading, it gives your brain that time to sort of say, yeah, I identify with that the way that this author is trying to make me feel or or whatever it is. And sort of say, it's okay to, you know, make mistakes in, in terms of thinking that this role or, you know, being a developer it wasn't right for me either because it was too monotonous. But where I am now, I, I love it because, you know, every no two days are the same, even though broadly speaking, I do the same thing every day, you know, different cases and whatever come through. So it's, it's a real balancing act and being honest with yourself is the real key to unlocking. I would, I don't want to say like super cheesy, like happiness, but 
genuinely, I mean it, that being able to say, I need to change something and then putting a plan into place and kind of sticking to it, even though it can take several years, is well worth the effort. Yeah, and sometimes having something to work towards and just being able to see measurable improvements out of a situation is really all it takes to change your attitude around, which kind of doubles your um, net result. Because you're, you're, you know, you're energized, so you're, you're getting more creative, you're working a little bit harder, you've got energy again, so it's not as much of a slog. And it's just simply by just having a, it doesn't have to be a master plan, but just a few key milestones that you're working towards and you can see progress. And if you can, you need to be able to realize that progress to actually get the boost, but if you can pull it off, it can be a trick. And I, you know, it's not right, possible. Once you can start building that momentum and sort of, yeah, that's like, what it right, is. I just got that done. Okay. It was that's, a tiny piece of it, but I can keep going. Yeah. I'll tell you the other thing as well is, isn't it's not necessarily just about huge life changing stuff like changing job or emigrating, right? It's about incremental change as well. Making small tweaks to your morning, like Brent said earlier, you know, take the 20 minutes and do the yoga but do it regularly and build that into your routine. Like Node Runner's saying in the IRC, get a standing desk so you can change it up or go, and, you know, if you're working from home, go and work on the couch for 20 minutes or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, I actually did that today. Is, um, before the show, I was out in the living room of the studio working from there just to just to change it up, change up the energy flow a little bit so that way I was getting, that way I get a little more pep, peppy for on air, you know, get myself work going again and get out of the sleepy chair that I've been in since like 7 a.m. and yeah, it actually does work. Just little tricks like that that seem silly. <laughs> That's how I describe it. That seems like a silly thing to do, but sometimes it works. And you just got to find the ones that do for you. If you think this is something we could talk more about, uh, let me know. You can either tweet me at chrislas or linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Because I think, you know, maybe that maybe we do an extra on it or something like that. I don't know what I don't know what that avenue would be. People in the chat room are saying do a special on it because it does a it does apply so much to open source development, but it's it's broader than that too. I would like to think that Mr. DeVault got something out of even writing that post, you know, simply putting those words down and acknowledging that himself. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's there's a level of, of it being, you know, just therapy, uh, for lack of a better word, to sit down and put your thoughts admit out it. like that. Even and just then, admit it to the public, right? Exactly. And then put those thoughts, you know, somewhere where the public can actually read them and, and understand the struggles that you're going through, I think helps a lot. And it's, it's kind of a first step to acknowledging that and, and changing the way that you operate so that yeah. uh, you do have that little bit of downtime and you don't necessarily have to schedule everything, every single event of your, of your, you know, your life to, to try and, you know, have a little, you know, bit of time for your family or, um, that time just to walk around the block and, and, you know, get out of a headspace for a moment. I think, uh, I hope at least, and I think he probably did hear from a few people like right there with you, man, so much on all of that, because I think it resonated with a lot of us listening to it. Okay. Well, um, I have something kind of special for us that I say for the post show, because probably, it's probably too retro. Maybe Wes and I are the only ones that remember this, but this just felt extremely appropriate with today's topic, so I leave you with this. But I just wanted to make one copy. You say, I'll just make a copy for me and a friend. Then he'll make one and she'll make one and where will it end? One leads to another, then ten, then more. And no one buys any discs from the store. So no one gets paid and they can't make more. The posse breaks up and that closes the stores. Don't copy. Don't copy that floppy. So let don't me break, break this down for you. San Diego, no more Oregon Trail. Tetris and the others, they're all gonna fail. Not because we want it, but because you're just taking it. This 
disrespecting all the folks who are making it. The more you take, the less there will be. The discs become fewer, the games fall away. The screen starts to shrink and then it will fade. Programs fall through a black hole in space. The computer world becomes bleak and stark. Loses its life and the screen goes to dark. Welcome to the end of the computer age. <laughs>